everybody's coming to me for a reason. Some might be looking for love and they think if they get a big apartment and get their lives kind of squared away that love will come in. Some are looking to be in a building where maybe they're going to be in a part of a community. Maybe they're looking to be accepted. Maybe they're lonely. Maybe they want to be seen by the city or sometimes the world as, wow, that person has really trumped all of us. They truly have the jewel in the crown. But there's always a why, a how and a why. And I have to, you know, kind of uncover what that is. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. It is a great day to be alive. It's a great day to be in your ears. Thanks for having me. Let me take a look around in here, see what you've done. Oh yeah, things are looking good. Things are looking clean. Thanks for the Q-tip earlier. That's going to be helpful to everyone. Let me look in here. Oh, further inside, your brain's looking good. It's clean. It's fresh. It's ready to have an excellent day. I can tell. And I know it's going to enjoy your brain, that is. I know your brain's going to enjoy this amazing conversation I've got coming up with my old friend, Holly Parker. Let me ask you a question. What do you think it's like to sell a $50 million apartment? $50 million. Can you imagine? That's an unfathomable amount of money. And if you buy or sell a $50 million apartment, you probably have like five to 10 to 20 X that, right? I mean, you'd have to, wouldn't you? How do you apply for a loan for a $50 million apartment? Are there enough zeros on the application box for you to be like, uh, how much were you planning on financing? Um, about $49,825,000. I'll put down about 175 grand. Would that work? No, it's a crazy thing. Holly buys and sells $50 million apartments all the time. In fact, in the past 24 years, she has sold over $8 billion worth of real estate. She's had an incredible career, and she's got a new book out called Back on the Market, A Realtor's Guide to Love and Life. And I'll tell you more about that in just a second. Before I do, I want to say thanks to the listeners and friends who reached out in the last week or so. It was so nice to hear from you, Steve Chamberlain, Dr. Stephen Sullivan. Yeah, I got some smart listeners too. Stephen Sullivan, PhD, listens to my show. My buddy, Alex Ellerson, such a kind note. Thank you, sir. And my man, Robert Joseph, thanks for spreading the good word of crazy money on the Facebook. Speaking of Facebook, there's this group called the Crazy Money Podcast Listeners Group, and you can join by searching those words on the Facebook and then clicking the links that come up. And a few people did that this week, and their names include Kristen Thone. Welcome, millennial. So happy to have you here. You're probably doing a far more vigorous workout. We'll try to keep the conversation upbeat so you can keep your pace going. Okay. Uh, Linda Marvin from Las Vegas. Hey, so nice to uh, see you on the Facebook. I believe, I'm almost certain that you're the person who came up to hear the live recording in Flagstaff. The person. There was maybe a couple more, but thank you, Linda. Nice to be in touch with you. Heather Geisberg, Pennington, Diane Weber, Bill Courtright, Ricky O'Connell from Tucker, Georgia, and Marnie Lopez. Thank you all. If you want to reach out on a different forum or you have feedback on guests or suggestions for guests, you can hit me up. Hit me up. That's what the kids do, right, Kristen? That's what millennials do. Hit me up. HMU, paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Well, it's been a crazy couple of weeks, nutty stuff going on in the market. This isn't really an investment show, but I thought it was interesting, all this crazy stuff that's going on with GameStop and the short squeeze they're putting on the old hedge fund folks. It's funny how you know people are drawing lines. The hedge fund guys are the evil ones. They're investing the pension funds of employee unions and pension funds from state employees. They're trying to make money for retirees, and they're the bad guys. Well, 
I guess that's the way some people view the world. But I have found this interesting because my 11-year-old son owns one share of AMC Entertainment. That's right, one share. About a year ago, he got some money, I think, from his grandparents. Instead of leaving in cash, we said, well, why don't you pick like five stocks that you want to own? We can watch them and see if they go up or down and talk about why. Well, in the last 10 days, there's been ample reason to discuss the stock market and the $9.80 profit he has made from one stock, AMC, that has trebled, quadrupled. I like saying treble because it reminds people that I know that there's another word besides tripled. Anyway, at least trebled, maybe quadrupled, and we made nine bucks. Anyway, if you've got a few extra hundred bucks, buy your kids some stock. You'll have something to talk about besides what they ate for lunch and uh, who we played with on the playground. All right, let's talk about Holly Parker. Holly and I have known each other for 22 years now. You'll hear how we met in just a second, but she's an incredible person. She's one of the top realtors in New York City. She sold over $8 billion in property. Billion. She's also a self-made millionaire, consummate connector of people, world traveler, mother of twins, and an author of a new book, Back on the Market, A Realtor's Guide to Love and Life, in which Holly tells the story of her divorce, re-entry into the dating market as an ultra-successful woman, and how she earns the trust of billionaires who purchase $50 million apartments. Her insights into building those relationships are really, really interesting. I encourage you to stick into the middle and end of the podcast to hear those. On this week's episode, in addition to that, we talk about the source of her and to an extent my motivation to succeed, which comes from an anxiety of wanting to be seen, to be liked and respected, and more specifically about how she channels that energy to both destroy her sales goals and give back to the world. She's a highly accomplished person with a wonderful energy about her. After you listen to this interview, her success will not surprise you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Holly Parker. Holly Parker, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you so much, Paul. It's great to be here. So Holly, back in 1998 or 99, we had either lunch or coffee at an outdoor table. I believe it was in Chelsea, the Chelsea neighborhood of New York City. And the premise of the meeting was an interview for you to potentially join the digital media company where I was working at the time. It was called launch.com. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this meeting? I remember it so well. Sixth Avenue merchants. Do we go to merchants? Is that what it was? <laughs> we went to merchants. So at the end of our meeting, we agreed that there wasn't a job here, but we should be friends. And since that time, You've sold over $8 billion worth of real estate in New York City. So apparently you've bounced back from the professional <laughs> depression that I caused you that afternoon. <laughs> that is true. That is true. I was just thinking about this this morning and recanting all of that to a friend or history. How did you go from that tragedy, that horribly terrible event in your life to getting involved in New York real estate? Well, you know, I wanted to be in sales. I wanted to be out and about. I loved people. So I had worked in Boston before that for a little bit in real estate, but I thought that I wouldn't be able to do it because I didn't know many people in Manhattan. Actually, I knew like four. You were one of them. (laughs) See, I thought you knew everybody. It sounded like you already knew everyone. I was trying to latch onto you because you were already so well networked. Oh gosh, no, no. I had gone to school on the West Coast for college. I went to high school in Andover, New Hampshire, and literally was working off of my four friend plan. (laughs) You don't start selling real estate at the top of the market. Where did you get your legs under you? I got offered a job at Gray Advertising, which is at the time was at 38th and Park Avenue South. 
And they offered me $22,000 a year and told me that I would be working between 10 and 12 hours a day a lot. (laughs) And I walked right out of that meeting and walked into City Habitats, which was a block away, and said, you know what? I think I can take my chances and make more than that. Well, knowing four people. And so I got a job within, you know, 15 minutes of leaving that meeting and said, let's roll the dice. Let's do this. City Habitats, not the white shoe real estate firm. No. I mean, my God, they hired anyone with a heartbeat. So I worked there for two months. I did seven rentals in my first sale and said, all right, I can do this for real and went down and got a job at Corcoran. So City was just to see if I could do it. So when you walked into Corcoran, did they take you seriously? They did not. They thought that I was just looking to kind of amuse myself for a couple of days a week. And there's this quote saying, look at you with your Tiffany earrings and your jewelry. What kind of car do you drive? And I said, Saturn. He said, oh God, you really do have to work. I'm sorry about that. So I've always been a very hard worker, just something I was born with. And I made it happen and did sales shortly after that very quickly. So you go to Corcoran, you start selling. What made you good at your job? I think there was a combination of things. I'm a people person. I get my energy from being with people, but also pleasing people. So that was a key ingredient. Also, you know, I was raised by a partner in a financial firm, my father. I always say I kind of came out of the womb counting money. I just understood money, making money, working hard, and then how to use it to make more money. And to explain that to people who had different talents, were artists, were dancers, were more on the creative side and share those talents and do it from a very authentic caretaker way was just accepted broadly in New York. When you first meet a new client, what are you listening for? Everybody's coming to me for a reason. Some might be looking for love and they think if they get a big apartment and get their lives kind of squared away that love will come in. Some are looking to be in a building where maybe they're going to be in a part of a community. Maybe they're looking to be accepted. Maybe they're lonely. Maybe they want to be seen by the city or sometimes the world as, wow, that person has really trumped all of us. They truly have the jewel in the crown. But there's always a why, a how and a why. And I have to, you know, kind of uncover what that is. Do you have a process for figuring that out? Just listening, asking questions. I talk a lot about in the book that, you know, behavior and, you know, 90% of communication is nonverbal. I need to spend time with people. It's very difficult if I don't speak to them live. I would say that the challenge would be to only do it over email or text. That's incredibly challenging for me. I've done it. But if I can get on the phone and speak live and much better if I can be in front of them and watching them, those messages really come through. You say in the book, newly single people are scared, empty nesters are starting over and looking for security. This is a lot to process when you're helping them with a transaction. How do you keep their motivations in mind? And what's an anecdote of how you've used understanding what the seller or buyer was looking for to help them want to work with you again in the future? 
Well, I take a lot of notes on that first conversation when I sit on the phone and I sort of recant them back to them saying, hey, guys, you know, this was something that you wanted to come back into the city and really spark your lives and back into going to Lincoln Center or maybe, you know, one client said that she wanted to get in shape and she was lonely and she wanted to live by Reebok. So really reminding people of why they called me in the first place. And it's going to be hard. There's going to be roadblocks. There's going to be moments where you're going to want to give up because it's too expensive or too hard, or you're getting distracted or fearful that this isn't going to deliver what you thought it would be. It's like any kind of goal, a physical goal, a mental goal. There will be moments where you are going to want to turn around and go in the other direction. And so I just remind them that this is all part of the process. Fear is part of the process. And, you know, I've bought 10 apartments in New York since I've lived there for the last 24 years. So I just share some of my moments when I am terrified when I bought real estate. And that helps. The storytelling, I think, is incredibly helpful from my own experience. You mentioned that you came out of the womb understanding money. What were you like as a kid? Were you a people pleaser? Oh, a huge people pleaser. I mean, my parents were sort of, they're huge people people. So (laughs) I love people people. (laughs) They are people people. They lived across the street from their best friends. We lived on a dead end. And so there was, we call that a cul-de-sac in real estate. Come on, Holly, you've been in the city for far too long. I know a dead end is not something I would say in sales. (laughs) Luckily, I'm not selling that house, which they still live in, by the way. The house I was born in is still where they reside. But the street had a lot of people. And then my parents bought a boys camp, an old boys camp in Maine. And we still own a piece of that. It had 400 acres and they bought it with six families. So all of these families had between two and four children. And I was the very youngest of all of them. So the Lord of the Flies, I was Piggy. And (laughs) the money aspect just came. I mean, you had to grab attention because no one was giving it to you. And as I say in the book, money is freedom. It is the freedom to make choices and decisions on your own. And I needed that as Piggy and as this child fighting for my life. You know, you talk about how you were raised and you went to boarding school. Did you feel like you came from a wealthy family or? No, absolutely not. And still don't, regardless of if it's true or not. My dad is from New England and is the most thrifty man. Don't turn on the gas yet. It's not quite November. Oh my, I mean, literally grew up with hats and gloves inside my house. Uh, (laughs) I had a dream of one day being warm. And he said, your mother and I are really supporting you with this book. We've bought two copies. And, and, um, you know, that's just, that's just how they are. And they were just here and it drives me crazy. And at the same time, motivates me beyond anything else. They're generous. Of course, they're generous that they paid for school. And they have these unbelievable moments of generosity when it comes to education and learning. Outside of that, you know, you got to do it yourself. I want to try and put that in a bottle for my own children. Although, you know, it's so intense. It's very hard. 
What do you mean? How's it intense? It's intense, you know, during lockdown. I want to get the kids crafts and things that we can constantly do for activities. I have two boys that are six and I'm an old mom. And so I'm like, oh God, what are we going to do? We have to do something. And so I'll buy crafts. My parents never bought crafts when I was younger. I mean, we made Play-Doh out of flour, water, and salt. There wasn't, I mean, if you wanted a sweet, you had to make it yourself. We never got bought cookies or you know, Rice Krispie Treats or any of those things. You have to make it from scratch. You know, here's a rock. Go play with it in the yard. Um, (laughs) That's how they are. And I love it. And it still drives me crazy. And so that's one of the sources of your motivation, you think? One, being ignored. And two, (laughs) right? You know, just... Wait, how many siblings did you have? I'm one of six. I'm not going to have a lot of empathy for you on this one. You're a New England Protestant. You probably only want a four. I'm one of three, but remember, my godparents lived across the street. They had three and we did everything with them. There was no vacations. There was nothing that we did without them. So that's five right there. And then wherever we went, sometimes the older ones got to bring a friend. So there was this massive group of children and the the calling card was Holly, Holly Rops. That's what they would always tell me. And they wouldn't want to wait for me because my sister's four years older, my brother's six years older, and they didn't want to ski with me. They didn't want to do anything where they had to slow down what they were doing to be with me. So there is a little bit still to this day, I would say it almost gets stronger for me of I'll show them. <laughs> I will show them. So we did a call a couple of weeks ago to catch up because we haven't spoken in a long time to talk about what we talk about in this interview. And you said at the end of the call, you're like, I'm just getting started. I'm like, Holly, you've already made a gazillion dollars. You're highly successful. What do you have to prove at this point? Oh God, Paul, I feel like I am just getting started. The energy, the fire, I call it the salad spinner inside of me. <laughs> is at full blaze right now. And I'm really excited. I'm excited to give back to the world. I'm excited to start women retreats that I'm going to have out at my farm. You know, as soon as COVID is safe, hopefully my first one will be in September, an executive women's retreat. And I want to take care of the caretakers. I'm one of them. I want to fill their tank and I want to figure out how we are moving the needle to help people together. So I really feel a call to, you know, to humanity, I guess. What's going to happen at those female executive retreats? We're going to have so much fun. But one thing, you know, that happens in this road to success that I believe starts with being lonely and starts with not feeling loved in the way that we desire. And so we say, well, I know Money is important. So let's go get the money and then I'm going to be loved. And we know that that is a long road that doesn't get fulfilled. We have to love ourselves. And so, you know, at the women's retreat, executive women feel very lonely and not connected. I found that in my days in real estate. So first of all, we're going to feel heard at these retreats. We're going to connect with nature and we are going to have so much fun. You got to be a fly on the wall. It's going to be amazing. Now, (laughs) no, it sounds great. I've got so many ideas for you for attendees, though. I'm sure you've got a long list already, but it's interesting. You say talking about, you know, when I make money, I'm going to feel loved. I mean, that's, 
that's a big burden to place on any goal that you have. I think one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast, I know one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is because I embraced that feeling from a very early age like you. As the fifth of six kids, I wanted to feel heard. I wanted to feel seen. And I think if I might have been the second kid, I could hold down a full-time job and not have to pursue these crazy things that I'm trying to do. And on some level, it's the pursuit of just being seen. Um, Exactly. Yeah. I wrote this piece. I'm going to keep talking about me since this is your interview. I love it. There's this piece I wrote recently, and it's about like... I remember watching Jerry Maguire and right at the end when he does the whole you complete me thing. And I was like, girl, you need to run because this guy is looking for affirmation in the wrong place. He needs to go find himself first. Right. I agree. I thought that in this last year too, seeing that again and how scared he was to be by himself alone, Jerry, (laughs) all alone. The point being that he couldn't be by himself. He was too scared. You talk about a lot of these kinds of issues in your book, Back on the Market, which is available now where all fine books are sold. And the book draws the parallel between your work life and your personal life, including your divorce after your first marriage. After, what was it, seven years? Yep, seven years of marriage. Did your professional success upset the dynamics with your gorgeous ex-husband? You know... It didn't, it didn't. It did in the way that we had grown up together and we had both had the travel and sports and all of these wonderful things. And when it came to doing that together, I felt like he kind of laid down on the floor. The concept of money, his family never talked about it. It was just something that wasn't talked about. And my family, we talked about it all the time. I had, you know, jobs since I was really eight years old. I would make bread. I sold Brussels sprouts. I sold French bread. You sold Brussels sprouts? Well, because we had them in the garden. So I put them in a basket and literally knocked on people's doors and said, do you want to buy some Brussels sprouts or five cents a piece? (laughs) How did the Brussels sprouts sell? I mean, I th- they did well. They were used to me. I was always selling some things. Here comes the Parker kid again. She's hawking something. <laughs> hawking something, the lemonade stands. The barrettes were really big. I had a window washing company, then a child daycare, day camp, sunshine window cleaners, and then sunshine day camp. So there was always some way. I put all my money in, a, in this Tootsie Roll bank, and I would go <laughs> upstairs. Like my dad does still to this day. He goes upstairs. And I call them nuts. He counts as nuts as a little squirrel. And I used to go up to my room and pull out that Tootsie Roll jar. And I would literally be like, five, 10, 50, 20, 25, 30. And that joy that I had from counting my hard-earned neighborhood dollars was amazing. Your respective orientations with your first husband, that was a contributing factor or was it sort of the attitudes behind it? We did not speak the same financial language at all, like at all. And it was absolutely the breakdown in our marriage. He would make big financial decisions without me knowing that I was absolutely opposed to them and he would do them anyway. You know, I don't want to, you know, disparage anyone. It's just, you know, I spoke 
Chinese and he spoke German. We had no concept where the other person was coming from. And yet there is still a lot of love there. And the dissolution of a marriage is highly painful. And you speak quite frankly about your post-divorce depression. Did work provide you in that time with a healthy outlet or was it miserable dragging yourself to the office and every showing? Oh God, I love work in every moment where my personal life, even through COVID to sort of drop whatever's happening in my own life. And during COVID, I would go outside and put in my earphones and have these conversations to clients. And all of a sudden I'm in their world and I'm helping them. Mm. And that just feels so good because I'm good at what I do. And I know I can help someone. I can calm down most people and get focused and come up with a plan of how we're going to handle whatever is coming at us. So I completely go to another place when I'm working. You know, it's like getting in a little time machine and escaping whatever challenges I'm having personally. So I love that. I mean, who wouldn't, right? You mentioned in your book that when you reentered the dating market, you felt that your fabulous apartment scared men off. Do you think they were threatened by your success? I do. I just think that at that age, with the people that I was dating, I think maybe many of them had just started to feel important themselves and spread their wings. And I think it was very critical for them to feel manly and that they were the big cheese and they did not <laughs> want to share the stage. And, and now I look back and I totally understand that. It just didn't work for me. And I made a conscious decision a couple of years after that first apartment where I found something bigger, double in value and in size. And I thought, man, if I move there, I'm never going to get a date. <laughs> and I just said, to hell with them. I'm doing it anyway. And I did it. As you should have. I have a pre-recorded interview with a dating specialist, a matchmaker for very high net worth people that's going to come out on Valentine's Day. And Ooh, I can't wait. Yeah. Well, here's a challenging question for you. She says in one of her books that the number one reason that men don't call successful women back after the first date is because they came across bossy. What do you think about that theory? I think bosses are bosses. I think bosses like to make decisions and take control. But I think in anything, Paul, if someone can gain my trust in what they do, in order to be a good boss, you have to share the stage and you have to hand the reins over. So I think any woman will hand the reins over when it's earned. And I don't think they want to earn it. Have your personal ups and downs made you better at your job? Oh, for sure. That's so humbling. My God. You know, anytime I start feeling amazing, um, <laughs> have a down day. And I'm so humbled, Paul. I'm so humbled constantly to that. So I say it a lot. My anxiety is the reason for my success. It is what has pushed me. It's what's connected me to other people. It's what has allowed me to see other people's pain 
and desire. So even though, yes, is it a struggle? Of course it is, but it is also the exact ingredient of my success. Isn't that weird? You know, I was thinking about this last night that, you know, when we compare ourselves to other people, you know, all we compare ourselves against are the desirable traits of that person. You know, I want to be Tom Cruise because he's got, you know, millions of fans all over the world and he's a box office sensation. But do I want the entire package of that dude? Do I really want to be post Malone because he can crank out hits like he's pouring a bowl of Cheerios? I mean, that same brain that does that is also the one that thought it was a good idea to get tattoos on his eyelids. Do I want the whole package? Exactly. How do you channel your energy? If you're having a down day, how do you focus yourself so that you're going to still get stuff done and you're going to be present and you're going to feel like it was worth it at the end of the day? There's something that I talk about rechanneling and setting the stage for optimism because it doesn't come easily to me on many days. And so Tony Robbins calls it priming. Everybody does it in their own way. I do it in the morning. I meditate daily and I have my gratitude prayers. And I really use what is called visioneering in kind of setting the stage of how I want my day to be. And if I don't do that, then those dark days can come and swallow me if you give in to them. Or like your computer in the old days, control, alt, delete, you reset it. And you say, I'm not going to give in to that. Like, you know, if you were to get up and you would be all stiff, then you practice yoga and you're not stiff anymore. The same thing comes with your mind. If you say, you know what? Yeah, I feel really pessimistic today. And you try and reset it. Does it go away in a 30 minute period? Of course it does not, but it certainly can help. And, you know, I talk about from a physical standpoint, really taking care of your body in those days with all of the things that it needs, because the mind really, it's just an extension of the body and it just needs extra help. No coffee, no alcohol, getting a lot of sleep and doing those things habitually over and over again will certainly help. I get the no alcohol for a little while, but no coffee. Come on. Well, for me, you know, I go through my moments where I'm just trying to give my body, you know, almost like getting your oil changed. I just try and give my body the very, very best that it can for a while just to check in. How's my mind now? Study yourself. How's my mind doing now? Is it clear? Is it better? Am I more optimistic? And for me personally, there are times where I do have to put down everything. I just have too many of those darker days than normal. Buying or selling real estate is often highly emotional for the sellers and for the buyers. How do you help your clients maintain perspective throughout that roller coaster ride? Is it perspective, Paul, or is it sanity? (laughs) Where's the line? I don't know. (laughs) Well, as I say, there's a thin line between hope and delusion. People lose their minds during this process. And I like to think of myself as a little bit shrink, a little bit magician. I like crazy. Um, (laughs) I find it very interesting. And the crazier the situation, I guess, the more I'm intrigued and inspired and just feel like I have an important role here. This person is losing their mind. 
and I'm here to help. And so I guess I just feel almost more needed the crazier it gets. Okay. In a heterosexual couple, who picks the realtor? And do men and women fall into gender stereotypes in the transaction with like the man only caring about the dollars and the woman only caring about the vibe of the place? Sometimes I would say that's maybe 60%. I would say it really depends on who's wearing the pants. Sometimes the guy is just too busy and the woman's doing everything and setting up, you know, two apartments for him to come and choose from at the end of the day. And so you really have to determine who the decision maker is and who really has the control over this transaction. It was interesting in 2014 to me that so many Asians were coming into New York and the women were making the sole decisions with really hundreds of millions of dollars and not making a phone call to their husbands or partners in order to move forward with these transactions. And that was the first time I'd seen that. And it was hugely inspiring to me. Yeah, that kind of runs counter to stereotype, right? That you would. Exactly. Exactly. What's it like to sell a $52 million piece of property? Oh, God. Think of your most exhilarating roller coaster you've ever been on, where, you know, moments of why did I get on here? I'm going to throw up over everyone in back of me (laughs) (laughs) to that moment where you're getting out, where a lot of people say, I want to do that again. So it's hugely emotional. You're going to hit many roadblocks where the deal will be dead. But if you can get people, the buyer back and the seller, it is both sides back on track to continuing this transaction. I just came off of celebrating a deal last week that closed on last Friday of $42 million. So the celebration that continued up until yesterday, I mean, it's so great to see the buyer who said they were out, by the way, right before the mm, contract was signed, mm. called and said, I'm absolutely out. There's egos involved. And, you know, I said, get them on the phone. No, Holly, they said they're out. They don't want to talk about it. They're done. Get him on the phone. I'm not asking. And I got him around that ego situation and reminded him to keep focused. It's not about winning. It's about gaining the property in the end. And that buyer is over the moon that we got him past that hurdle. Over the moon. Because they looked at it as a competition that I need to get it at this price or I need to sell it at this high price as opposed to I want a clean transaction that I can walk away from and feel good about? It was two men and the seller seller was rethinking and didn't think he wanted to sell after the buyer had signed the contract and put the money down and the seller had it for two weeks and then didn't think that he wanted to sell anymore. And we had to uh, raise our bid, which we did by a significant amount. But at this point, he just said, I'm out. The guy's, you know, he's playing with me. He's out. And I had to remind him that it's natural for people to have second thoughts in a transaction. And maybe he wasn't 
playing with him or maybe it was, but did this person want something that is not available in normal markets? It doesn't come on and people do not have access to this. It is one of the most beautiful apartments downtown I have ever seen. The jealousy factor is off the charts. (laughs) Stay focused and don't get into the, he did this and therefore I'm going to do that to him. Figure it out. Come up with, you know, this is a negotiating strategy. Let's raise the bar and get him off the sidelines to continue this transaction. And both sides are very, very happy about it. Are billionaires harder to get off the fence when they say they've made a decision than a workaday millionaire in New York City? That's an interesting question. If they listen, then we can change their minds. Some listen and some do not. Some are open to really instruction and some are closed. It depends. Do they ask more than the typical client in terms of things you're willing to do to make deals happen? They do most, not all, also give more. I find that there's one thing that's very consistent with this type of client. They want to pull you in emotionally. They really take you in as a friend and get you involved. It's not only financial, that you're rooting for them personally. The personal touch is very consistent across the line of my uber, uber wealthy, which I'm thrilled about because they let me into their lives. I've gone to, you know, their kids' bar mitzvahs. I've gone and built a school in Thailand. They let me into their lives. And that's part of what makes my job so amazing and fills my tank. Do you think they have fewer people that they can trust? And so if once you break the trust barrier with them in the positive way that they're like, okay, this is somebody I need to have at my side. For certain. That's kind of cool. For certain. And that's what makes it such a privilege, a real lifetime privilege. And then they say to their other uber wealthy people who have to be always guarded about who they let in their life, you can trust Holly. Exactly. That's wild. I never really thought about it like that. You'd think they'd be even more suspicious and like look for things that are wrong. But in reality, they're looking for people that they can trust. Exactly. And my dad had it, you know, in his career, his clients were high net worth individuals. You just meet him and you know that he cares about his clients. He still does. He's 85. He still does. Mm. He's on boards with them. And, you know, I think I got a little bit of that from him in that people can tell that I'm in it for the long haul. I'm a lifer and I want what's best for them. And sometimes that's going to be what's good for me. And a lot of times it won't. Let's say you could have the perfect review written by one of your high net worth clients about the experience they had with you as their representative, what would you want it to say? I would say, you know, get ready for a really special process. This person, you will be able to trust them. The information, facts, and knowledge that this person has about investing in New York as a home or as a pure investment was something that I had never 
experienced before. You will have fun. If you follow her advice, you will make money, sometimes a lot of money. And this person will be in your life for the remainder of your time here. All right. Well, this was a trick because I reached out to one of your colleagues and you can probably guess what he or she said when I asked, what makes Holly such a success? And here's what he or she said. Her originality. There's just nobody like her. She charts her own course. Also, her thoughtfulness. People want to work with her because she's so engaged and always all in. Honesty as well. She tells you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. That's really nice. I love that. Are those the things you would want people to say about you? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's really kind. It's interesting. You know, I learned a lot about you today. I learned a lot about real estate today and New York City and billionaires. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, my guest is Holly Parker. Her book, Back on the Market, A Realtor's Guide to Love and Life is out now. I'll have links to it in the show notes as well to Holly's personal website. Holly, thank you for joining. Paul, thank you so much. So honored to be a part of it. Well, I've said many times before that this podcast has been a real gift to me because not only have I gotten to meet almost 100 guests whose knowledge and insights or the generosity of sharing their stories has benefited me, but it also has helped me stay in touch with old friends who listen to the podcast and maybe give them the opportunity to hear some of this wisdom too. So it's a gift to be a channel. Anyway, it's a long way of saying that what a gift it is to reconnect with Holly, who is such an interesting and accomplished person. So thank you, podcast. Thank you, Holly. Thanks for sharing your story. For all of you out there that find Holly interesting, you'll love her book. So click the link in the show notes or go to Amazon right now. Now, not if you're in the car, but if you're at your desk, go to Amazon, open the browser, type back on the market back on the market. That's the name of her book. Click it, buy it, read it, share it with your friends. All right, let's get to takeaways. First of all, some of the most successful people I know deal with anxiety and money and success in business is something we look at in the same way we looked at our report cards in high school. Yes, we were the accomplished people. Yes, we got good grades. Yes, we generally behaved. But really, as I look back on it, I kind of am coming to the conclusion that you know, the report card was just that thing we needed to know that we were doing okay, that we were driving within the guardrails, that like we were on the right path, literally and metaphorically. And I think money is just one of those things you go like, I'm not sure if I'm living exactly well, but I'm playing some game by the right rules because by some count, by some score, I'm doing well. It's not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that sometimes you see people who are uber accomplished and it's not driven from where you think it might be driven. So, uh, that's takeaway number one. Takeaway number two is kind of what I mentioned a few minutes ago, which is if you see somebody who's uber successful, you have to take the whole package, right? You can't just look at uber successful entrepreneurs and think, I only want the jet. No, you have to take the brain that keeps you staring at the ceiling all night because you can't put your brain to sleep using the more prosaic opiates like booze or prayer or meditation or whatever, like your brain is up all night. That's how you got the jet and that's what you got to deal with. So it's a package deal. Next time you find yourself comparing yourself to someone or coveting something somebody has, stop and ask yourself, do I want the whole package that comes with it? My guess is you're going to be okay being you. Lastly, a big part of our wealth and our health, you know, further into adulthood is a function of the people you are lucky enough to meet on the way. Yes, I'm relatively successful. Yes, I didn't come from millions of dollars, 
but the people I had in my life all along the way were of incredibly high quality. My mom used to say it to me all the time. It's like, I don't know why, but you have such amazing friends. Every teacher I've ever had said, your class was, I missed that class. And maybe that's just a bunch of bullshit that they tell you, but I don't know. I've always felt lucky to be meeting great people along the way. In college, in business school, in New York City, after business school, the companies I worked for, and Holly Parker was one of those people. And reading her book reminded me how great she was. And I was like, I need to talk to her on the podcast. And so I'm grateful to her again for doing that. If you want to find out more about her, there's also a link to her website in the show notes. Go down there, check it out. Next week, we've got our big Valentine's Day special with Rachel Greenwald, who's a Harvard Business School graduate who is now a full-time matchmaker to millionaires and billionaires. And she has got some really interesting stories about the role of money and success in finding partners late in life. I know you'll find that conversation interesting. Be sure to tune in. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.